Hi, and thanks for joining me once again as we relive some of my personal favourites from the past nine seasons of Talking Design. Today, let's flash back to when I caught up with Mark O'Dwyer, a leading architect and a director of H2O Architects. His interview on Talking Design was extremely memorable, not only for the way he talks about architecture, but as importantly, the broader cultural world. His interests extend to theatre and to fashion. From 2015, please enjoy my chat with architect Mark O'Dwyer. Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm here at RMIT University in Melbourne and I'm presenting Talking Design. I'm here with an architect, Marco Dwyer, who's a director, co-director of H2O Architects. You may have heard of them, I'm sure you have. And uh, very interesting practice and I've been following their work for many years. And welcome to the show, Mark. Oh, thank you, Stephen. Mark, before we begin on some of the work you've done... You were saying that your father was a bank manager and so you really got to move around rural Victoria in your childhood years. Yes, that's correct. Um, my dad was uh, with ANZ Bank, so uh, it was quite useful because uh, it meant almost every year for initial stages we, we'd travel uh, from one side of Victoria to the other uh, following his banking path and career. Uh, very lucky, though, towards the... Um, the sort of uh, 11 to 17 years that um, we parked in Port Ferry for a number of years uh, on the basis that Dad kept saying that one of us, um, being a big family, one of us was always going through important years at school so we couldn't be moved. So we managed to stay there for uh, for six good years. Wonderful place to grow up in. Mark, what was interesting about Port Ferry? Uh, Port Ferry was good because it had a, a very interesting culture internally in the town. But also in terms of architecture, uh, it tied in in that the bank we lived in uh, was a, was an old bluestone bank uh, in the main street. Uh, we lived above that bank. At the time, uh, it needed an extension out the back, so the, uh, the ANZ Bank employed an architect, a local architect, to do a building out the rear that did storage and uh, garage and support facilities. And what was interesting is that uh, being a heritage building, uh, the architect tried to do something that related to the context in that it had a, a bluestone-looking material to relate to the bluestone of the building, but it was still quite a contemporary material and also very contemporary forms. And uh, as a young and I found that dialogue that the architect was trying to do um, very interesting. So architecture became something that uh, immediately started to interest me. Um, as an adjunct to that, at the same time I was doing art classes in at the art gallery, and the uh, the lady who ran that, she said, "Mark, look, you know, you'd be you'd be an excellent architect." But the difficulty there is that uh, I often, being a sort of uh, in my teens and not wanting to do what senior people would suggest you do, um, I took her idea of me doing architecture in the reverse and thought, "Oh, if she wants me to do architecture, I better not do it." <laughs> and so I started heading in other directions, more about science and physics. It was also paired in that I spoke to the architect who'd done the renovation at the bank, uh, and he had a um, number of things to say about architecture. He said, yes, certainly you do a lot of design, but you also must be good at writing and attending meetings because there's a lot of writing and meetings to be done in architecture. And that added to my thinkings that perhaps architecture wasn't for me because I wasn't very strong at writings or meetings. 
Um, so I steered away from it and went into the physics and actually started doing geophysics no. uh, after leaving Port Ferry for a number of years. At university? At university. So I went through a geophysics degree and uh, it wasn't until I met some architecture students while studying geophysics, they turned me back the other way and said, oh, it's fantastic. All you do is design and look at interesting concepts and, and the like. So with those discussions, I was led back to architecture and re-enrolled in architecture after geophysics to, uh, to go on to become what I have. That's interesting. I think what's, uh, before we even start looking at your work, because it is quite uh, broad, you do a lot of civic work, uh, you've just uh, put in the Gene Bank uh, building in Horsham uh, and it's been shortlisted for this year's Architectural Awards. Um, but I'm, I'm very interested because you, you have this ability, and I think it's the, the, it reflects on the practice, to actually embrace the broader design areas. I regularly see you at, at theatre events, I see you at fashion events, I see you at um, all sorts of cultural events. So you, you're as interested in fashion, decorative arts as architecture. How do you think that informs your work? I think I think you've touched on an interesting stream and it, it comes out of when studying architecture, uh, I had some, some excellent tutors and teachers in there. Uh, there was one, Hugh O'Neill, uh, who's still uh, involved with Melbourne University. Uh, he um, he had this wonderful idea that an architect is really like uh, a calling. It's it's like the priesthood in some ways, which is probably another thing you want to be saying at this point in time. But uh, it's it's a calling in terms of it's uh, something that you have to commit to. But also, it it is a very broad sort of church in that its learnings aren't just narrowly focused in one particular direction. It requires a broad education across a number of fronts and that's where you start to get into ideas of design through theatre and fashion and um, visual arts um, but it's even broader than that because it's also informed by a scientific or pragmatic background and that's where the studying of physics slash geophysics was useful because it gave me um, a bit of a head start in that area that most architects wouldn't have had as much of a focus. Mm -hmm. So you can see in that stream that a lot of our work is uh, certainly more institutional. We do do other areas as well as residential and commercial, but within the institutional realm, you know, we get a lot of fascination about facades and facade technology, about uses that are particularly scientific in their application about material science that, that so, does work in that direction. So, Mark, we look at the latest project, the Gene Bank in Horsham, which, in a sense, that does tie back to your very early beginnings in science. Correct. It's, it's a, it looks quite uh, sculptural in the landscape, really sitting in this very flat paddock, and there's the mountain ranges behind it. But it's actually quite a complex building, even though it, appears from the outset as very simple. It's actually three layers. And tell me about the gene bank, because it's an interesting story. Hmm. The gene bank, it, in, in first part, it ties back to one of our first buildings when we formed H2O in 1999-2000. Uh, That's the RMIT Textiles Building, um, which is also another hmm. uh, Western Red Cedar clad facade building. Um, both buildings um, have a lot of overlap. Um, key first part is that both of them have uh, the timber as a, a sacrificial 
um, rain screen externally. It's not there as part of the weather protection of the building in terms of water. It's there as part of the weather protection in terms of reducing solar load on the facade. The real weather protection is in below that layer. Um, in the RMIT case, it's a skin of Tyvek insulated behind. In the case of the gene bank in Horsham, um, you know, it's jumping forward, it's uh, another 13 years later we design it, so the skin then is now a metal skin, so it's really a metal box inside of a timber rain screen. Um, but then it has other layers inside of that practically in that the real gene bank itself is um, really a series of freezers which are built out of freezer fridge panel material um, both ceilings, floors and walls. So effectively it has an esky box inside of that metal box inside of a timber box. Mm -hmm. All of it there for different uh, levels of insulation and layering um, to really enforce that the, um, the environment conditions in the freezers, which are minus 20 degrees, very severe, are kept without um, huge amounts of energy being expended to keep them at that level. Mark, in terms of the uh, gene bank, it, the weather conditions or the local climate is quite extreme. Very. You can get up to 40 degrees or plus Celsius in summer. And the gene bank, gene bank, the storage of the seeds, has to be constantly at minus 20. Is that correct? Correct. And, that, and that's why um, other facilities like this um, are usually underground. So mm. dialing it back, its use is that it's part of a worldwide network of um, working in a sort of Monsanto world where um, having access to seeds uh, of a a unique type is is becoming an important resource and governments are starting to realise that they have a national responsibility to start developing a bank of seeds that are used within <clears throat> the domain of that uh, that particular area that the government covers. So this is the Australian version of it. There's other versions in the UK and there's other versions in Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, both of those variations go underground because underground you have much more stable conditions it's much easier to expend less energy to get to the minus 20 and hold it at minus 20. And Mark, initially, were you thinking of going underground? We did, but cost was always an issue. We never had the funds uh, both to excavate it and bury it, but also develop the whole facility so its uh, support facilities could be underground or easily access an underground facility in the way that it needs. It works as both a facility for accepting seeds, storing them and then distributing them on demand, but it's also there as an important education facility. Um, underground could have worked, but again, it's that access part mm. for education. It's also important that a degree of physicality is an important part of the representation of the facility. So to go underground wouldn't have had as much of that physicality within the context. As an example of bringing your love of art into this design, people looking at this great gene bank store from the outset would say, well, look, it's a beautiful piece of contemporary architecture. If you look a little bit more closely, you can actually see the influence of the surrounding paddocks and the colours. And you mentioned something about a wonderful artist who had picked up those colours in the 1850s. The artist was... Uh, Eugene von Girard, yeah, a, a great uh, artist of the period. But it goes back even before that. Uh, the idea of using some of the colours within the context um, goes to a, a bag that I saw by a French designer, Jimin de Perche, 
uh, I saw it in a, a trip to uh, Tokyo where uh, this particular bag designer had taken some very interesting colours, you know, starting to pair rusty browns with um, sort of Cyrillic blues and aspects of acid yellows. Um, all three interesting colours on their own, but not often combined. Uh, and on the basis that so we knew we were going to have some sort of earthy, rusty colours within the building uh, in terms of both its external and internal, um, I started casting around for both visuals of and, and representations of some of these interesting colours and, and first hit upon that a lot of the movements through the different seasons had very interesting colours in that area and that led to the artist Eugene von Gerard who, who travelled most of Australia, but particularly Victoria, um, did a lot of uh, paintings around Warrnambool, so I was familiar with him uh, when I grew up, but then I was surprised to find he had passed through this area and did a sequence of, of paintings to do with the Arapiles, which are visible out the uh, out the side of the building that we're doing. So it just done. tied in beautifully. So it all fitted in, and he had these beautiful colours which he captured both in terms of the floral content but also within the sort of um, cloud formations and, and backgrounds of, of what he was doing in that area. So it it tied in very well. It was also useful too in terms of bringing the stakeholders on board because it gave them something local but also the idea of it being on this plane looking out to the Arapiles was was critical towards what we're doing because this building could end up as being something quite sterile as a lot of these buildings are so you know typically most architects when they're doing a building of this type will end up with something as like a white fridge a white on white um, clean room type facility because that's the sort of natural gravitation that occurs we didn't have the need for it to be a clean room. It was going to be minus 20. Certainly people were going to be uh, working in it in, in gowned-up suits that would uh, suit the conditions. So we wanted something with a point of difference and went for the internals to be all in brown um, with the idea that they're seeds asleep at minus 20 in a faux version of them being underground with the, with the brown representing a version of underground. Um, we also then wanted to break that approach and that's where it starts to take another theme that runs through our architecture is that we'll do a dialogue in one direction but then we'll flip it and do a dialogue in the other direction and in this case as well as trying to pretend that there's a faux version of these seeds being underground we wanted to remind people that they're really on a plane looking out at the Arapiles so we penetrated the central area of the freezers with a large window that's triple glazed and shaded uh, when the when the sun gets into that direction. So it's a viewing platform. It looks, and it looks straight out onto the Arapiles. So. There's another project that particularly caught my eye, and um, it's very much a homage to uh, Howard Arkley. Uh, and it's um, the library that you did um, in Avondale Heights. A really beautiful piece of work. Um, Tell me about that because it is Howard Arkley is one of my favourite artists and it's it's so wonderful to see it so fully expressed on an exterior rather than just little glimpses of Howard Arkley. Tell me about that. As a piece, that's one that was mostly done by my my partner Tim Herberg. Um, he, we formed H2O by coming out of Bates Smart in um, 1999 2000, where Tim was a director. 
uh, and I was his associate director, and we effectively said, look, let's continue doing some of this hands-on institutional work that we've been enjoying as ourselves. So in that project, um, it's it's part of the new growing areas of, of Melbourne in the west, uh, and there was a very clear idea that the building had to be a strong statement in an area that's that's starting to get its civic qualities going uh, in ways that uh, are disjoint but need strength. So the strength of the building had to come out of both its colour and its graphic imagery. Uh, at the same time, Tim was having a look, um, like I'd looked at Bon Gerard for, uh, for Horsham. Uh, he'd been influenced by the work of Arkley uh, and the ideas of his whole suburban interface. Um, and around that time, there was a, a wonderful exhibition that had just been had on and his the work. The Correct, yeah. And so that influenced the idea that, well, perhaps the suburban qualities of what Arkley represented could be re-represented as a building um, in a suburban context that's growing and developing. So again, that, that sort of layer-over-layer approach that we do a lot um, really work quite well in this context. Um, from an intellectual property point of view, how does it work when you're adopting such a strong image of, say, an Arkley painting? Mm. Is it Do you have to go back to the foundation... There were, dis- there were discussions in that area in order to get it forward and it was seen as being an acceptable way of mm. representing it without any need for it to go into okay. any formal cha- formal process. No, it's just a beautiful, beautiful building and uh, it does capture, a bit like the gene bank, it does reflect the many housing estates that have developed around mm. Avondale Heights. It also has another theme <clears throat> that underlies our work and that's that in some ways we're like... Um, we are modernists, uh, Tim and I, and if you look at it, both those buildings you've talked about, you know, they're essentially box-like in, in nature um, because a lot of the uses that we're talking about um, are quite rectilinear and box-like in terms of what goes inside them. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways we tie back to those modernist qualities of trying to get um, the function and the form having a relationship. But uh, unlike a lot of the pure modernists, we then try to give it an expressive quality, and in this case, the expression is through the colour mm. uh, and the um, and the aspects relating to the Harkley Harkley imagery that's uh, that's on the facades. In the gene bank, it comes out of the the materiality of the mm. timber, which itself then starts to dissolve into you know, a form of representation of the seed bank logo, as you'll see on the south facade. So um, we grab that sort of modernist approach and try to be more playful. And I think that's important because it might in some ways go back to that discussion I had of the um, the renovation that the architect had done uh, for the for the bank in Port Ferry there, that he had uh, a materiality, which was um, a bluestone coloured, um, modern, you know, 90 high, uh, 390 long um, concrete block that related to the bluestone of the building, but was quite a contemporary material, creating forms that were referencing the sort of slate roofs and pictures of the existing building, but yet were quite unashamedly modern. Mm. So that's where we might dissolve into a discussion on you know, contemporary architecture. I think we're slightly different at H2O in that we think context is important in terms of what we do as our first relationship in architecture. We use that um, as a generator first of what it is that we might do and how we might respond. And then we'll work a number of layers on top of that out of it. So whereas most contemporary architecture um, context has become a dirty word, you know, um, it's, it's often seen as a 
an area where ego might be compromised if context is dictating how the uh, the design mm. might progress. So um, other more personal aims and ideals might uh, might mm-hmm. become more important, whereas we're the reverse. We start first with context. Mark, you travel quite extensively. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of your favourite countries in the world that really inspire you for design? It's probably more cities <clears throat> in that um, you know, Tokyo, and well, that's a back to that uh, Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Tokyo is probably the most dynamic and interesting city on the planet. You know, and it also it works well because I come from an English language background, having something that has a completely different language and a different culture um, is is really quite bracing and reinforcing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also Tokyo's ability to transform itself um, over a period of you know, months into another being very mm-hmm. swiftly, whereas most cities tend to you know uh, gradually change themselves. Tokyo can change itself very swiftly. But also, I think Tokyo's critical because it brings together those streams of theatre, music, arts, design, clothing mm-hmm. and architecture in, in a totality that's really quite interesting. I think the work of Toyo Ito um, in, in Tokyo and in other parts of Japan um, are really quite uh, exciting. He has a lot of themes that parallel mm-hmm. what, uh, what interests us. Uh, as is the work of, of Tadeo Ando, um, an earlier architect, a lot more primal in terms of his use of concrete and now mm-hmm. steel, um, but equally interesting. And you see a lot more crossover of those approaches um, in, in Tokyo than you see in a lot of other more Western areas. A good example of that is Issei Miyake, which I think is... Uh, one, one of your favourite designers. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a god in terms of design. He, he crosses with Ando into architecture and art by you know, creating beautiful buildings and centres for galleries well, the, like he's done in the mid-city in Tokyo. Mm. Gallery 2121 Correct, 21. is, mm. is probably right. the best fusion of fashion and architecture oh, anywhere in the world. It's brilliant and it changes regularly. And it's also, it takes on broader issues because as well as the gallery obviously doing you know, fashion-related exhibitions, it has a huge stream of environmental discussions or even just general cultural discussions. So a bit like the idea that architecture, you know, it's obviously about delivering buildings and interiors. Um, it's saying that we're talking about a totality of a world um, that is a lot more vast than just a simple idea of, mm. you know, this is a building. He uses his gallery as a tool towards education, towards a, a better future, as well as occasionally doing retrospectives back to show you his own work. And that in itself is quite powerful because you get to see this idea of technology that's uh, informed a lot of his work. Mark, you've, I mean, you've probably built up a huge um, uh, portfolio, or you have built up a huge portfolio of institutional work, mm. not so much with housing. Housing's one we're starting to move on. We've, <laughs> we've taken the um, precarious direction of architect as, as own developer. Um, and there's a number of things that we're looking at at the moment. Um, interestingly, multi-res, multi-res, yes. So that's that's the next chapter, possibly, because um, I've also had a sideline of working in VCAT. Mm-hmm. Um, for those that don't know that, VCAT's the um, Administrative Appeals Tribunal was set up by the government, where if um, a developer or architect or builder or anyone that's doing a building 
feels that they've been badly done by uh, by the uh, by the council uh, or even in some cases by state government in terms of what's being approved they can then take that to um, an appeals tribunal and also the reverse if there's um, if there's residents feel that a, an approval has been given for something that's not correct uh, they can take that to this appeals tribunal um, I entered into that arena because I could see um, back almost at the time when I started H2O um, there was a building that was being done by Ivan Rejevic and talking with Ivan I could see that the process just wasn't working that that particular appeals tribunal was obsessed with planning outcomes not uh, and ticking outcome. boxes and not design outcomes so it almost needed you know, architecture 101 to mm. you know, someone to come in and champion and say look this particular building is good for these reasons so you're doing that and I do that regularly I regularly mm. champion good design through that forum mm. It's interesting. It's brought me up against a lot of high-profile developers and, and important architects uh, to do that work. And uh, in that arena, I think that there's still something more that's that's lacking. And I think it's ultimately about um, the development community having the courage to take on new and different ways of living mm -hmm. and also different forms of building. They're very imitative, uh, very much looking at what others have done before, um, very conservative in that mm. approach. Um, I think there's an area for a change in there, and um, you know, it, it is something we're toying with. Um, we already have the the land. Uh, well, getting so back we'll to the word. Mm. Sorry to interrupt. Okay. Uh, getting back to the word context, probably the, one of the biggest problems is that the decision makers <clears throat> see context in a very different way to the way a design person such as yourself sees context. And often it's very literal. So when anything new coming in, like this, a design from an architect that doesn't directly reference something that they can actually see, mm. then that's already problematic for them. Correct. And, that, yeah, I think, and I think it's education. I think it's mm. about trying to have broader understanding of what is that context and what are the ways it could be responded to but also what are the different examples and that's where travel has assisted because over that time of travel um, it's interesting um, before before the bringing down of the Berlin Wall around um, 1989 I hadn't actually travelled at all I hadn't left the country then all of a sudden um, I did a trip with my wife and that sort of opened the door to what possibilities were there and so now I travel as regularly as I can in order to develop a, a broader feel for how things are happening on the world stage including you know visiting um, designers and theatre in a world context mm. uh, but before that it's developed a, a sort of background of um, relevant examples of buildings of how different responses have occurred, both as a memory but also as a visual database, which I keep. And it's using that database that then can be a way of explaining to people how an outcome is appropriate. Mm. Um, one of the biggest issues we're finding within the city is this idea of scale. Um, that you have a, a set scale or a set pattern to a particular area and nothing should be built that contravenes that idea of scale. I think on one level that approach is supportable um, because you, know, you, you, you can have a lot of difficulty if you start opening the doors towards differences in scale, particularly in a, in a set area. 
but in the hands of a really strong and confident designer, you can produce buildings that have difference in scale that do work. Mm. Um, it's a complex dialogue, and having examples that show how it can be made to work uh, is an important way of making a city move forward. Um, a good version of that, I remember when they had the um, um, Peter Cook um, the noted Archigram architect uh, was out here for a conference and uh, he'd just passed through Surface Paradise first time ever. Lucky him. He, he was very lucky. <laughs> he'd been to Surface Paradise after. I hadn't been to it at the time he spoke about it, but I have since and I now understand totally what he means. And what did he say? He said, look, you know, Surface Paradise is just intriguing. There's so many things there that breach all the rules that, you know, when you go back to what we've been teaching people, they should not happen, but they have happened and they've worked. Mm. And and there is life and it's made things happen. There's so many examples where they've breached the rules and it doesn't work, but... It's almost that it's, sense of chaos. It's a version of it. It's a chaos, but also I think there's other... There's other bigger streams in there. I mean, the obvious one is there's an idea of what you do on the ground plane and the uses that are there. Um, design is is a multi-faced area, and it's about having a series of priorities and trying to work out which ones should be further forward and which ones back. A good example in planning at the moment is there's a lot of accent still on overlooking, particularly as you move in towards the centre of the city. But I'm a firm advocate that overlooking becomes less of an issue the more you move into denser, more central Part areas. Of the life. Um, whereas an issue like overshadowing is more important than an overlooking approach. And that's a discussion that has to be had, you know, in, the, in these sort of forums, and it's part of the education. Another one that I'm enjoying a lot about education is the idea that you're in a heritage-type area and that's something that looks nice and quaint and old and heritage isn't the only response. You can do a modern version. Again, going back to that architect who well, did the extension to the bank in Port Ferry. Well, one of the best examples of a fine contemporary insertion in a heritage area was Rundholz store mm. in Berlin. I don't know if you've seen do it. Know it. Yeah, it's brilliant. Exquisite. Yep. Absolutely exquisite. Just very shiny, white, slick insert and I've told people about it, it's in Berlin, Rundholz store, mm -hmm. it's magnificent mm -hmm. feel of the 80s slightly but absolutely exquisite and it's just wedged between two very period buildings and really what really a highlight for me when I was traveling look Mark I could talk to you forever I think you're a very interesting architect probably one of the most interesting architects I've had on this show um, oh, thanks, you really are you offer me um, insight into how an architect thinks but I really I think more importantly you your interests mm. are exactly what I'm looking for on this show, someone who's really diverse. So, look, thanks so much for coming on the show today. You've been with Mark O'Dwyer, director, co-director of H2O Architects. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Stephen. It's been a pleasure.